Welcome to the Spiritual Geek Out Podcast. I'm your host, Diane Hudock, where we have fun talking about the phenomenal and the fascinating. From angels to energy healing, from mystical places to mystical teachings, this is a place where we nerd out on the science of the soul. Welcome to another episode of the Spiritual Geek Out Podcast. I'm thrilled to have you. And my guest today is a woman named Deborah Walters, who I love deeply. She is a dear friend. She is my homeopath. And she's come to talk about a subject that I actually know very little about. And I would imagine perhaps the same is for you. Deborah Walters is a licensed homeopath, researcher, and devout practitioner for almost two decades of the Baha'i faith. She is the author of the internationally best-selling book, The Supreme Remedy, based on her extensive research on the body, ego, and soul coherence, which offers deep insights into the Baha'i fast. In her private practice, she offers over 15 years of experience and research on the microbiome, rewiring the nervous system and trauma, and she is tenacious at innovating new ways of holistic healing that are both effective and practical. And currently, she is immersed in a research towards a PhD in neurobehavioral sciences, where she is seeking the knowledge that could wholly, but not entirely, eliminate fear. Very exciting stuff. In this episode, we are going to explore many principles, teachings, stories, and writings of the prophet named Baha'u'llah, who is the founder and was the founder of the Baha'i faith. We discuss just who Baha'u'llah was and was considered to be by many that followed him, the phenomena of this thing called the prophetic cycle here on earth, his main message for humanity, predictions that he made a couple centuries ago, many of which have actually come to pass, uh, Baha'u'llah's teachings on death, the point or the when conception is considered to begin in life, and teachings on the afterlife, as well as how to change our relationship to pain and suffering. We talk about these subjects and so much more that are rich for consideration, to serve you, hopefully in your path to greater communion with your higher self and your joy. So as always, I hope that you enjoy this podcast, that it serves you well, and pass it on to somebody else who could use it. Well, I am so happy to have you on the podcast today, Deborah Walters, my friend, my homeopath, my fellow light worker and wayfarer on planet Earth. <laughs> and I say that wholeheartedly, which you are. And I was really interested in having you on the podcast today because you are a devoted um, practitioner, if that's the correct word of the Baha'i faith, a faith that to some, as far as my research goes, has been considered to be the world's newest and largest major religion. And I know very little about it, but thanks to you and some of my beloved clients that are Baha'is, 
it's just opening up a whole world for me. So I'm thrilled to have you, Deborah, and anything that you want to share and as deep as you want to go for the audience on this faith, just have at it. Thank you so much for having me. It's my honor and absolute privilege anytime to talk about Baha'u'llah and introduce him to anyone. Oh, great. Well, let's just jump in the pot here. Who was Baha'u'llah? Yeah, it's a great question because you pronounced his name, you know, very well. Baha'u'llah means the glory of God. And you will find the glory of God in the Bible, mm -hmm. in the Old and New Testament. So he was the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. And he's the most recent manifestation of God on this planet. Mm -hmm. He marked the fulfillment of the prophecy cycle. And he began a new cycle of universal peace called the Baha'i era. And there'll be many prophets after him under this era. About every thousand years, a new prophet will come under this new era. So he was also referred to as a universal prophet, which is a different from the last era, which was the cycle of prophecy, which means all of the prophets in the cycle of prophecy, starting with Adam and ending at Muhammad, predicted that they would return. Look for okay. me when I return. So that was their prophecy. That's why it's the prophetic cycle. Okay. They would say, watch for my return. You remember garden in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ was talking to his disciples about, you know, when the, my father comes, he will say many things I haven't been able to say, for example. You know, the Buddha predicted he would come later. All the prophets during this umbrella would come later. And interestingly enough, this, the prophecy cycle from Abraham had two sons, right? And they departed. And each of these two sons had lineages of these prophets. So in today's cycle where Baha'u'llah came, he was a lineage from one of the sons of Abraham and the Bob, which we'll introduce later, was the lineage of the other son. So the Bob was a lineage of Muhammad and Baha'u'llah was a lineage of Zoroaster. Mm -hmm. And they came together as a twin manifestation to introduce this great, holy and this new, exciting cycle of peace for planet Earth. Mm -hmm. so just a little bit about Baha'u'llah personally, though. He was born in the early 1800s. You know, he declared in 1863. So you can see how recently he was really here. You know, he was born into a wealthy family, spent time with the wealthy. He had no formal schooling or religious instruction, which is often the case with prophets. Right. He was much like the Buddha, that he was in a wealthy family and had a kind of a early age of luxury life, you know, was well respected by the government officials. He received his first revelation after he was thrown into a prison called the Black Pit. And he, while well, he had heavy chains weighed upon him. And interestingly enough, in this dispensation, a female spirit came to him and brought him the message. He called her the maiden of heaven. Hmm. It was so beautiful, that story. Why did they throw him into prison? Do they just consider him like, uh, kind of like what they did with Jesus? And Well... No. Um, so um, I'll get into it later with some of the other questions maybe that you ask in that, you know, at that time in the 1800s, Persia was pretty well known in Europe as the country to not go to because of its religious fanaticism, its wretchedness. It's, you know, the people were just degraded. The society was brutal, absolutely brutal and a frightening place to go for most European societies. And so Baha'u'llah entered this stage. He said, God chooses the most 
ill uh, people of humanity to send the prophet. And then so Baha'u'llah came in and, you know, some of his tenants were like, he promoted women's rights. Mm. He was actually helping his wife cook in the kitchen. That was unheard of in Persia, right? I mean, the man would never enter the kitchen, right? So um, it's all of his teachings really shook, you know, the power structure and the religious and um, political powers were really held together. Mm -hmm. So his revelation, his, you know, statement, you know, was really quite frightening. And Baha'u'llah was, you know, a believer in the Bab, who was the forerunner of Baha'u'llah, who was, you know, preparing his believers for Baha'u'llah's coming. So, yeah, Baha'u'llah was part of that movement. And so all of them were being hunted down at that time. So Baha'u'llah was entered this, this black pit, didn't know yet that he was the prophet of God. Why was Baha'u'llah considered the latest manifestation of God at the time? Yeah, so that we have to set up a bit of a paradigm there about manifestations, you know, like prophets, Baha'u'llah said, are kind of like divine physicians. They have their pulse on humanity, the collective of humanity and what's happening in that age. And that they are like divine physicians that um, bring the teachings of that day and age. And so these spiritual teachings like Baha'u'llah are like patterns that organize one's internal wiring or your nervous system, but mm. it also wires, you know, humanity and our happiness, you know, so, so Bahala brought not only our individual, you know, uh, salvation, but collective salvation as a planet, because, you know, we, we're moving into this technological, unif you know, global society that really needs teachings on how does this all work? Cause it's so new to us. I love that you say he's a pattern because there's a great talk from my teacher, John Roger. He talks about Christ energy, because a lot of people think Christ energy is a person, but it's not. And um, Gary uh, Springfield on my podcast earlier, an earlier episode, talked a lot about the Christ matrix. It's a great episode. And how, to that point, it's not a person, it's an energy that we can all embody. And Jesus was one of those beings, was a chosen being to come down and hold, carry the pattern of the Christ energy at that time. So I just love that you use that as a um, descriptive. I really get that. His teachings, you know, he says are impregnated with meaning, which means if you read his teaching and I read his teaching, we'll get different meanings because yeah. His writings are like the ocean and we're standing on different parts of that ocean, right? And so we are able to dive into the depths of that ocean and just endlessly uncover pearls from just one teaching mm -hmm. of this, these patterns that we can understand and, and implement in our own lives for our healing. Right. What, what was his main message, Baha'u'llah's main message? Yeah, um, Baha'u'llah's main message is really you know, unity. If we just sum it up in one word, it's unity, the unity of the planet. There's one God, no matter what word you use for this word, divine creator, God, Allah, Yahweh, it's all one God. It's the same God we're all talking about. He also mm -hmm. talks about the unity and the oneness of all people. We're all brothers and sisters under the same God, right? And we all live on this one planet and it's one religion that is evolving over time. Mm. You know, as humanity evolves, you know, not only collectively, spiritually, our brains evolve, 
you know, as mammals, you know, God continues to send messengers for that day and age, you know, like chapters of one book. So Baha'u'llah starting a whole new chapter of this, you know, divine revelation for us, for our guidance, you know, again, setting the pattern of what's next for us, you know, so we're not left helpless and powerless feeling in this new state of, you know, globalness that we're in. He's like, no, we have the pattern. Here's what we can do. And here's what you have to follow and put into place in order to attain this most great peace. So unity is really the message. Now, underneath that are some tenets that he had that are really important to understand. And again, remember in early 1800s in Persia, this was like very radical. Right. Um, Men and women are equal in the eyes of God. Absolute Mm -hmm. must. In fact, he says when women are allowed to fully like two wings of one bird fly, that bird of humanity will fly. That women are supposed to be allowed at the rightful place in equalness of men in all things. Science and religion are should be in harmony. There's coherence of these. Science explains religion and religion can guide science. Mm-hmm. If science goes off on its own, it gets too material, right? And it doesn't consider like, um, you know, spirituality. And, you know, science can actually, I mean, all the neuroscience I'm studying through the university explains, you know, how spirit works, you know, quantum physics, same thing. So these things should be in harmony. There should be one world government over the country or the whole world that, you know, kind of monitors for peace and regulates, you know, everyone has their diverse countries and that should be honored, but there should be one that kind of and you can see that's there's a United Nations in place now, right? That is, you know, kind of an early formation of that one world government. All, again, Baha'u'llah said, elimination of all prejudices to attain this oneness and unity, right? There's so many kinds of prejudices we all hold, and we can see how those are just coming out rampantly in this day and age, and that we have to really individually work on that in order to attain that and appreciate diversity and unity and diversity, right? We all are diverse people, beliefs, systems, ways of being in the world. They should all be honored, you know, as long as they're not causing harm to yourself or others and embraced and having unity, how to find unity and diversity is really that key. Um, Universal education. What's interesting about Baha'u'llah is he said, if you have two children and one is female and one is male, educate the female. If you have only enough money to educate one of your children because the female is the first teacher of the next generation her children and he is very clear on that that universal for education compulsory education for all peoples because he says man is like the talisman education can alone bring forth all these beautiful virtues and you know inner things that the inner creator has put placed inside of us right left uneducated they just stay kind of dull it's harder to reveal these beautiful things we have inside of us and then lastly he said there should be spiritual solutions to economic problems one of the worst things in the world is having extremely wealthy and extreme poverty next to each other it's really unjust so he said that there should be you know uh yeah, there it's really unjust. So that justice is actually the foundation for humanity and not mercy in this day and age in his cycle. It's has and you can see the injustices everywhere. Oh, and then last one I forgot, which was a universal language, so that all people, no matter where you go on earth, it'll feel like home. You mm-hmm. know, that someone will understand you in this one that we all would learn one language. We'd have our, you know, 
unique languages in our home country, but everywhere would they would speak one language. And he said, I'm leaving that up to the people of the earth to decide what language it is. And you can see how that has evolved since the you know late 1800s. So interesting. Uh, two things that really stuck out for me is one, the one world government, because of course you hear in alternative spaces a lot about the new world government as something quite nefarious. And maybe that is something quite nefarious and very different than, of course, what Baha'u'llah's teachings are implying. Um, would you agree to that? Absolutely. I think, again, Just if you're clarity. coming, one of the things that two paradigms Baha'u'llah gives is there's a bottom-up structure in his, his pattern for society, which is you are an agent of change. You're not powerless. Everyone participates in this life. You must participate. You cannot sit back anymore because Baha'u'llah said there are no priests mm-hmm. in religion. You investigate your own truth. He said, investigate my claims that I'm the latest manifestation of God. Decide for yourself. Don't listen to anyone else. So you can see even in our social media platforms how investigation of truth is so important. You don't trust everything you read. Like, okay, go investigate it. If this is a claim, this program, this person is claiming, is it true? You know, even your own thoughts, you should say, is it true? Right? Because we have our own biases, neurobiases, so you know, prevalent in all of us. So this investigation of truth. So he has this bottom-up paradigm that's just so important, you know, and we have yearly elections, you know, we have no elders or priests. And, you know, he gives us a tool of consultation that we come together and the clashing of diverse opinions, the divine will will emerge. And if you've ever been in consultation and seen the divine will just emerge, everybody goes, it takes your breath away because everyone just knows there it is. That's the divine will. And we all submit to that divine will immediately, whatever it is, regardless of what my attachment to my opinion or what I thought was the right thing. When we come together collectively in our diverse opinions and they kind of clash together like waves, that yeah, divine will emerge. So this bottom-up paradigm is totally different from this top-down paradigm, which is that new world order you're talking about. Is this is I maintain power, I maintain the top, I will, you know, have all the resources, right? And no, his is a whole different structure of bottom up, right? And just the last one is, you know, the inside out paradigm. It's shifting. Even in neuroscience, we've had an outside in paradigm where we do things to animals, or we do things to the brain and watch neural circuits, you know. So that's how we've been learning the brain, which has been really quite enlightening and wonderful for, you know, academia and understanding the, you know, neurology and how it works and how we think and how we respond to the environment. But Baha'u'llah is teaching us there is a very big inside out paradigm, whereas there's the world inside of us. And that's how we're supposed to bring heaven on earth, quote unquote, is that we bring this, you know, when we make peace inside of us, this pattern inside of us, this inner unity, and we start acting that out within our world and acting out the teachings that Baha'u'llah has given us, it creates this pattern for peace, prosperity, harmony, coherence. Right. And that you don't worry to. I mean, of course, we're worried and saddened by the things in the world It's getting quite stressful. In fact, you know, Baha'u'llah predicted all of this would happen and that um, and we are totally capable of change. But we need to focus, come from the inside and bring this inside heaven into this really big chaos that we're living in right now. Mm. And we have that capacity. 
Yeah. Thank you for that delineation and that explanation. That was great. It makes me think of a, a um, teaching or a principle, really. It's really a principle of spiritual psychology that I draw from. I was just drawing from it today in a session that life is, we live life internally. It's lived internally, yet it's experienced externally. The guardian of our faith, Shoghi Effendi, said life is ultimately the battle of the individual, right. right? Your inner experience is what evokes happiness, joy, sorrow, grief, right? Yeah. yeah. So I was just like saying, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The other thing that, just to circle back to some of those tenants you mentioned, did he have a solution? Did he ever touch upon any ideas in service to eradicating the the poverty, the depravity, the the economic uh, sort of situation between super rich, super poor, and no middle middle ground. There, just he absolutely he has that? quite a few writings on that. In okay. fact, entire books are published on the spiritual solutions. I'm not an expert on those solutions, but you can. The wonderful thing about Baha'u'llah's teachings is we're really lucky that A, we have a prophet who's been here so recently. B, you can literally read his handwriting and his writings. And they've been most recently translated in the last century. And that all the teachings, you can find anything about family life, about being a parent, about, you know, the um about economic solutions. I have found almost everything about a pattern in society in Baha'u'llah's teachings which is, and they're very recent and they apply, you know, not, not only principles, but even more specific. So there are whole books, you know, dedicated to exploring this and even economists having this in their conversations, right. And using these principles and trying to find out how to uh, implement them in society. Capitalism isn't one of them. I can tell you that. <laughs> right. Well, what initially led you to the Baha'i faith or teachings? It's Did a great question because I was raised Christian and I loved Christ. And as a little girl, I used to shake at night and I would think that um, Christ was returning. So I would look into the sky if see if Christ was on the clouds because I, I knew the trumpet had blasted and I would cover my ears and I didn't understand what I was experiencing as a young child. And I knew this figure, you know, or this energy was with me, this loving, very kind and so majestic energy, but I didn't know the name of the energy. And I was, I searched for this energy everywhere. So as I grew, I read every religion in the world. I even read the Wiccan faith, you know, the magic mm -hmm. folk. And I talked to them. I have searched far, wide Buddhism, Mohammedan, you know, I was, I recognized Muhammad as a prophet when I read the Quran. I said, this is a prophet of God. This is a man of God. You can't deny it reading the Quran. I looked everywhere. And finally, my, I asked my uncle who was, who had become a Baha'i himself. I asked him, well, what is, what is that you're doing? <laughs> right. Yeah. And he sent me a book by Baha'u'llah, you know, not a book, but a tablet by Baha'u'llah. And it was, I recognized them instantly. And it, it that longing I had inside, that search was over. It just, it was relieved. It it drove me nuts that trying to find it. And mm -hmm. I recognize it on other people when mm -hmm. I'm talking to them. 
I can hear it in certain people. They are just restless. Mm -hmm. They can't find that voice. There's something in there and they can't even articulate it. Mm. But it's longing, it's this, you know, passion, it's this drive to find some, you can't find it in the world. And when you read his writings, you're, you just recognize him. There it is. A lot of people come to the faith intellectually, like the tenants. Well, I can't disagree with men and women are equal, all elimination of form of prejudices, right? A lot of people come to the faith because it's attractive. You can't argue with it. And they want to be a part of that. I would like to add to the unity of humankind rather than the disintegration, you know, system. And this offers me solutions, you know, so there's many different paths. For me, it was a real heart one where I already knew him. This is kind of a two-parter. Is there a teaching that you draw on as a foundational teaching that really carries you like a thread through your life? And then the second question is, is there a teaching, and maybe it's the same teaching, but is there a teaching that you f- have found as of late, particularly with this great change or sense of speeding up of change, I might say, because we're always in this ever, never-ending continuum of change, but this acceleration period that you find there's a teaching that you've been using a lot with your clients, with your friends, just out there in the world? Oh, those are really great questions. And could I say one foundational teaching by Baha'u'llah that I use or am most attracted to? It's a flat no, because just like a very complex puzzle, all the pieces and all the teachings kind of work together. Again, you know, if you study biology, there's these principles of biology, right? And one is complexity and one is kind of unity. All things are flowing together. How can you pull apart different aspects of our body and study it? It's quite difficult to take it out of the whole and study it. So it's similarly with divine teachings. However, one of the most impactful ones for me, I could probably say, is um, the teaching that Baha'u'llah says the horse is like the body, the rider is like the soul, and the ego vies for the reins away from the soul. Mm. It gives us and really, and Bahala was known as a great horseman, by the way. So um, it's interesting. The horses are, so this led me down a path of a lot of horse research and training on dressage. I was terrified of horses. And I still went in and trained in dressage for five years. Dressage is a type of horse riding. And, you know, started in Europe. And just to understand that horse rider and trainer, you know, there's a triad there that, you know, you really have these relationships to and all the different personalities of the horses. It really, in my work with mammals, I started to really deeply understand a human being. We have this part of us that is a mammalian body in our brains and we're wired for threat. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to realize in our evolution as a species, we only started living till a, a century, you know, like a hundred years old just in the last century. This is all new to us, all this technology. We have been kind of stable for a long time and kind of tribal even, you know, this new way of being. So we are wired for threat in a very modern world. And Baha'u'llah's teachings are meant to repattern that and, you know, grow our neurology into more peaceful compassion, you know, which again, all the prophets have talked about, love one another, have compassion for suffering. These aren't new concepts. However, 
you know, this, this horse and rider paradigm really gives us insight into who's talking inside of us, right? Like you had mentioned, you know, that internal experience, how does one attain unity? Well, Bahala talks about submission unto God, which a lot of people really don't like that word submission, especially Americans, right? We don't submit to anything. Well, unless I agree with it, but submitting to the divine will is like a horse. Getting a horse to submit to you as a rider is quite an honor. Mm. This is a prey animal with eyes on the side of its head. I am a predator on its back, right? Eyes on the front of my head. And for this horse to bow down its head and submit to me, well, a couple things happen in submission. The horse's body moves in harmony. The horse is happy. And when I think go left, the horse immediately responds. They have a ton of mirror neurons, they're called in their brain. They can mirror. And that's what all social animals have, mirror neurons. So when I'm watching you eat, for example, if I see you eating, my brain feels like I'm eating too. It's a mirror neuron. It's a social thing we have. Right. So when the horse submits to us. It's in harmony. It's in happiness. It trusts you as the rider. It has placed its full trust in you. And of course, a good rider would never do anything to harm the horse mm. and would do anything to bring the horse in balance and happiness and love. And then we have this trainer who's training us in our relationship and our training to make the horse and rider better. And this is called a prophet of God, you could think, right? And that creates that nice triad. Now, there's this other kind of rider, though, that tries to get those reins and direct the horse. This is the ego. Mm. And this is the voice that pulls us into polarity. It's either good or bad. It's right or wrong. It's up or down, right? That pulls you into the polarities. Either I'm better than that person or I'm less than that person. It takes all the virtues and puts them into too much or too little, right? Just think of a time when you had to make a decision. What did your brain do? It goes into polarity. I'm either in this relationship or I'm out of it. You can't see the middle way. It just, it's unclear because that ego will take over. Hmm. The ego rider often, I've observed a few riders who are kind of, you could consider an egotistical rider. They love having power over the horse. They want to be powerful. They ride the horse hard and they demand of the horse. And if they want the horse to go left, they go, I want it now. No room for error with the ego. They shame the horse. They down the horse, you know. Or they overdo the horse. They compliment it too much. They worship the horse. You know, there's two different ways the ego can go, right? Again, vanity, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? It can be one of those things. The ego, it was, you're amazing, right? Well, you are amazing. But if coming from the heart, that's a different message, right? So each rider can even be saying similar words. But the feeling of that for the horse, the experience, that inner experience for the mammalian nervous system feels different. Mm. Oftentimes the ego operates within the head, around the head, and the, <clears throat> the uh, soul rider, the seat of the soul, Bahá'u'lláh says, is in the heart. The mm. heart is God's domain, right? Nothing in the world can touch the human heart. So that the rider, the, the soul rider, will be communicating through the heart. Yeah, that's so beautiful. I think of it, and this is how my brain works, when I sometimes use that analogy, but I pull from the three selves, and I think of the, the, the rider as being the soul aspect, the reins actually being the conscious self, because you've got to consciously pull on the reins to be directed or, or implement change. And the horse being the basic self. So you've got the basic self, the conscious self, which is the bridge, and the soul self. And the soul 
that unconditional part of you knows where it wants to go, but you've got to consciously turn the reins, hold the reins, direct the reins. So if you go off just a little bit, like you're shooting for the stars, you'll hit a whole other planet or constellation. And the ego or the basic self is the, from my perspective, is the horse, is the horse. And it's just going to run like the monkey mind. It's going to do whatever it wants to do. So I just love the way you laid that out from your perspective. It's beautiful. Yeah. So these are, of course, my understandings from horse riding, from understanding Bahá'u'lláh's, you know, teaching. Bahá'u'lláh didn't say these things. This is my experience and interpretation of this one riding that the horse is like the body and the rider is like the soul because the body is like a mammal. We have feelings, right? right. So right. And we're reactive. Yeah. You asked the second question, which was... Uh, do I anything for like the current conditions in the state of the world and for clients, are there teachings I pull from? Yeah. That you've been using a lot as of late that you go, gosh, I just keep returning to this teaching again and again. There is definitely because Baha'u'llah, you know, again, he predicted impending chaos is kind of the theme I gleaned after reading his writings, you know, that the gloom will envelope the earth, the darkness, you know, further, there will be economic distress, political confusion, financial upheavals. I mean, this was all predicted a couple centuries ago, you know, and it's so interesting how it's playing out because at the time you didn't know what that would look like. You know, there were world wars after that. I mean, it's been quite, uh, humanity has been quite through it and still going through it, even it's intensifying. And that's what he said. It would into it would become bewildering and into a crisis where there would be a ba- major calamity and most bahais know that teaching it's quite frightening where the limbs of humanity will quake basically something so frightening will happen that all, and that that's when the everybody will say okay we'll do what it takes to you know have unify. world peace and unify mm-hmm. yep mm-hmm. but he's but you know the bahais are trying to speed up the process of peace and unify so that can be lessened you know because again not everything's set in stone there's free will on this planet so because of this a lot of us i've observed and my clients are feeling powerless in their lives they're feeling this learned helplessness it's a kind of a thing in psychology and animal models um prove it i think in mouse models or rat models i can't recall but you can literally teach a mammal to stop feeding itself through certain paradigms that they've learned through learned helplessness, they'll stop doing things to even survive. Mm -hmm. So we see in psychology, children who are in trauma raised in houses that are really trauma filled. But if you look collectively at humanity, a lot of us are feeling very much this feeling of learned helplessness of powerlessness is that, Oh my gosh, the planet's dying. We're having this, we're having that. There's so many problems. There's so many problems. A, where do I start? And B, I have no solutions. So I do nothing. I feel apathetic. I feel indifferent or I get angry. I lash out, right? We're having these learned helpless responses. So I'm getting all these questions from clients of how do I even parent? Which, you know, there weren't that the, that kind of questioning. I mean, people want to know how to parent well, but nowadays it's this help. Oh my God, my toddler's running the house. It's like, how's a toddler running the house, right? <laughs> so it's like, it's a whole different paradigm. The learned helplessness has come. It's snuck up on us. Like, you know, frogs also, you can boil them to death if you heat them up in the water slowly and they, they are start in the water. And it's like humans don't understand that we're 
we're in the boiling water. We're going to boil ourselves to death. Like we like alert, alert, we have to do something right. And everyone's feeling it, but what can I do? So we don't know what to do. So again, we have all these learn helplessness. And the one thing Bahala I teach people is that again, it looks gloomy. It looks scary. However, you have to a meditate a little every day and find the eye of the hurricane, which is that internal connection to divine world where there's a place inside of us where the waters are calm and things are peaceful. And there's that abundance of love. All the answers you need are inside of you. It's that connection to the rider, that soul, the soul will guide you to the next step. So it's the one thing Bahala asks us to do every day is because the negative forces in the world are going to become hurricane-like. And if you aren't anchored in that eye of the storm once a day, you're going to be swept away. I mean, anyone who watches the news, how can you not get upset or grieved or angry by what you're seeing and frustrated? So this is one thing, you know, you know, the us and them non-existent. This has been an, again, prophets have talked about this, but you know, this oneness of humanity, we're the parts of one body. If we hurt another person, if we hurt ourselves, we hurt the entire tree that we're all the trees of leaves of one tree. But I think the, um, the most, the best thing I've taught people, and I can hear myself saying it over and over again, is you have the capacity to commune with Baha'u'llah or, you know, whatever your prophet is, Whichever one you follow, you can commune with your soul, with divine will, the Holy Spirit. We have many names for the divine love and light. You have the capacity to commune with it. You need to learn to trust yourself, have a confident heart, and do it. Because Baha'u'llah says God can turn a gnat into an eagle. Yes, He says one person with strong faith can change a nation. Now, it's not about I'm such a great person or I'm such a lowly gnat, right? It's that it's God can move through me and change things. So it's not about me. If I can get myself out of the way and learn to meditate and create this channel or this this hollow reed that God can blow his beautiful music through, right? That's what the submission horses ideally is that you submit your horse so God's will can flow through you, express through you, express into this world. And it can change it into a better place. Again, that inside out paradigm is that, and Baha'u'llah is so reassuring. I'm, again, I don't teach a faith in my practice, but I do reassure. I have a lot of suicide ideation cases in my middle schoolers. They're like, why even grow up? I'm not, there won't be a planet. There's not going to be this. There's so much killing. I might as well not even go to school. There's again, that learned helplessness. And I tell them, well, I just want to tell you in private, I'm a Baha'i. And Bahala assures us in the end, we will get there. Right. And it may not be anytime soon, but you have a part to play. You have a part to play. Each one of us has different capacities and a part to play in this world. You have to arise and get over yourself, create that hollow read and be very confident, courageous and bold to have the Holy Spirit flow through you in moments of fear, in moments of anger, in moments of frustration, in every in every moment of your day. You bring forward such a powerful story that I shared actually in my doctoral program not too long ago. And I've gotten a bunch of, I've probably gotten four or five uh, teenagers with suicidal ideation. And I just go, 
wow. They come to me and the mom says, you're our last and only hope. And I'm going, okay, that's a bit of pressure. <laughs> but of Obi course, Kenobi. <laughs> right, right. But of course, I'm just going to do the best that I can. I know that the God of my understanding, soul, spirit, cosmic, whatever, Christ consciousness, Baha'u'llah, pick your label name. But I, I truly believe that God sent them to me. And if they send them, it was sent to me, then... I'm there to serve them. I'm there to minister to them. I'm there to break open something that perhaps couldn't get broken by some other method or means. And to your point, I remember this first girl that came to me. She was the first one that came to me. And, and when the mom said, what would you like for, um, uh, for Christmas? She said, I'd like my own funeral. And it's just heart right. A heartbreaking and she's just such a beautiful beautiful person and and I've seen her a bunch of times since the first session she's doing great thank god but what was so amazing is that it's just that to be able to help this person yes I've had training in certain spheres yes I've got acumen and studied and have accreditations but that all honestly goes out the window. And I just have to allow myself to be the commutator of something much greater than myself. And I just said, just God, just use me to help her, just work through me. And I trusted. And it was really an act. And this is a very important word that I use with my clients, Deborah, which is claiming. I feel that humanity is in a time right now of claiming themselves to be great messengers, facilitators, holders, workers of the light, ultimately commutators of the light. We have the capacity to hold tremendous energy of the light action to literally assist other humans to transmute their stuff. And I truly believe that's what happened with this person. It was not my skill set. It was my surrendering to, it was my, as you so beautifully put, my submitting or submission to that power. And the second time I saw her, of course, I, I asked her, how are you doing? She said, well, I decided I don't want to kill myself anymore. And you can imagine whew, the emotion in the room. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. So, so thanks for opening the door to that. Yeah. And just, can I speak to that one point too, which Absolutely. is so said is that, you know, Bahala talks about divine fire and that's that transmutation, that alchemy of the heart that yeah. can heal not only yourself, but you can help others right in the planet. The entire right. planet is that, how do you build divine fire? Is that I just teach people simple meditation, breathe in and out of the heart center and focus on a positive feeling of gratitude, compassion, or love. And that heart, that connection to the soul starts that divine spark. Right. But not only that, there's this combination of that love and compassion because it transmutes pain and suffering. But also what I, I have to teach everybody is change your relationship to pain and suffering. In the Baha'i teachings, tests and difficulties induce pain and suffering, and we welcome it. It's a really different paradigm. Right. Because it's going to help us shed things that we need to shed. This life is very fleeting. It's very short. 
and we're, it's meant to prepare us for the next life, try to do as much good work as we can while we're here, spiritually progress with our free will choices, right? But I mean, um, Baha'u'llah has these teachings that are uh, interesting. My calamity is my providence. Outwardly, it is fire and vengeance, but inwardly, it is light and mercy. So if with taking in the proper light, our own personal tests and difficulties are actually inward light and mercy, much like when you parent your toddler, right, and say you can't have popsicles for breakfast, that feels awfully painful to a three-year-old who really wants that popsicle right now. But the parent knows it's not going to be good for you. And we're going to set a pattern that is not, you know, I cannot sustain that. Right. So like, you know, again, outwardly, that feels like vengeance and fire, but inwardly it's light and mercy to the child. Teach the child, no, you should crave good things for you. Right. I'm teaching you to take care of yourself. And so not only that, but we see the collective suffering. When I turn on the news, I'm like, all right, what's the collective suffering? I see it as inward light and mercy. It's a then I don't get as stressed out watching the news. I'm changing my relationship, my perception of pain and suffering. And it doesn't mean I'm a robot and don't feel pain and suffering. I very much do, but I know I can go to that divine fire of the heart when I do suffer and sit with myself with compassion. And I am a noble soul. As you say, we claim. Did you see use the word claiming? Claiming, right. Yeah, Bahala said. You are a noble soul. God created you to lay um, noble. He said, abase not thyself. Hmm. He's teaching us to arise to our station of nobility and claim earth, claim ourselves, claim this planet and make peace, right? Love one another as brothers and sisters, not as no stranger. There, there are no strangers on this planet. Hmm. Mm -hmm. As a side note, just speaking about consciousness, speaking about specifically the subconscious, which drives us, it drives our behaviors and where someone can literally hack your brain through utilizing your subconscious. And when we talk about the increase of suffering, the, the uproar of intensity and all this stuff that we're seeing, whether it be turning on the news, whether it be having conversations with your friends, whether it be the sense of division amongst people, whatever, I think of what's going on in the lower realms, in the negative creation, and the subconscious mind is very easily hackable to get you to start running these shitty thoughts about yourself. And it all comes down to repetitive content. So if you are spending your time like a teenager not really sure where you want to go in life, but you're hanging out with a crowd that has suicidal ideation or is really running in the negative spheres. And that is getting repeated as a download. It's like, literally, it's a hack for the brain. It's a hack for the consciousness. And it's going into your subconscious mind. And it's it's going to start driving you. I mean, this is how mentalists work. This is how they... <laughs> They do what they do and they don't tell you what they do, but they know, they understand the conscious, they understand the subconscious mind and how we are all hackable beings. And those particularly in power are very well aware of this as a system. And I avoid the news at all costs because I know that that stuff goes in. And if you watch it enough, particularly in repetition, the subconscious loves repetition. So why would I want to put that in as a program? I'd rather read something like 
a sacred teaching or listen to a meditation or an engaging podcast or you name it, make love. You you pick your thing that is actually a a a hack for your brain to happiness. I think that's so beautifully said. And um, Baha'u'llah offers that to us and that repetition mm. is that, you know, we're meant to spur away from this material world, but we also have to care about it. We're a part of it, right? So it's sort of like digestion. I liken it in my book, The Supreme Remedy. It's like you take something in and you eat it, you chew it up and you put it in your stomach, you digest it, and then you in, your enzymes will pick what's nutritional and integrate it and what's toxic and release it, right? Right. Similarly, Bahala asks us, in the morning, read my writings, just a little, just enough. He even calls it your appetite, you know? He says, you don't need to read pages and pages. You know how some, your ego will say, you, you're reading too much or you're reading too little. No, just read enough until you feel full, right. like a little breakfast. And then we have this obligatory prayer that we say every day and remember who we are, right? I declare my powerlessness into thy might, to my poverty, into thy wealth, right? Just like we are wholly opening that channel to him and acknowledging our noble soul in front of this beautiful creator of ours. And then in the evening, read a little more of my writings, again, until you're full. And then sometime throughout the day, think about, digest, so to speak what you've read. How can you integrate that into practice? And this is sort of movement. Our body needs to move and exercise and keep our muscles and our bones structure strong, right? Mm -hmm. And so we practice putting those teachings into applications during the day. So we think every, when we're in integrating into our day, we're thinking about those teachings. How can I put that into play here? And what starts happening beautifully is that when you're reading his writings, God is talking to you. And then when you go and pray to him, you're talking to God. And all of a sudden, over the first several weeks you start doing this, there becomes a dialogue that you are like, you've got to be kidding me. Like this is talk about. So you're talking about this repetition. Bahala has a couple times a day. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. Remember me. Right. Remember you are a noble soul. You are light. You are a light worker. You're here to do these things and transform and it rewires your brain hmm. really rewires your heart to your brain and happiness. Your prefrontal cortex will submit to your heart. Right. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. That's so great. Mm -hmm. Does Baha'u'llah speak of a heaven for the um, existence of other realms? Absolutely. He does. What does he say? Yeah. Baha'u'llah has a lot to say about <laughs> the afterlife. There's quite a few writings on death and um, the afterlife, but uh, the one main thing is that life is very fleeting and we're here for a very short time. He, he says the soul is created at um, conception and that this is the beginning of our journey. And through our free will choices in, the mis in this material world, the material world is a mirror of the spiritual kingdom. So through our spiritual choices, just like when we were in the womb, we grew arms to hold things, legs to walk, a mouth and lungs to breathe, right, and eat. So it's the same thing here. Is This is kind of that similar world of the matrix where we're growing and we're supposed to be 
getting qualities and attributes for the next life. We're just preparing for the next life because the next life, there are infinite worlds of God and the soul, it, it, there is no end. It lasts as long as God lasts. He says, we are going to remember our family members here. If we loved here, we love someone, we will remember it and be with them in the next life. And he he talks about there's a couple different layers in the next life. So, I mean, he says some very technical writings that are mystical that our brains really can't understand. Yeah. And he says that um, there's the, the um, layer of God. Underneath that is the layer of the prophets. So the prophets are co- pre-existing, unlike us. And then yeah. underneath the prophets, there's the martyrs. And then underneath that is the rest of us. And in each of those realms are infinite worlds of God. And that people from the lower cannot visit people from the upper, but the people from the upper realms can visit the lower. So like Abdu'l-Bahá, Baha'u'lláh's son, once was asked in London, how soon will I see my aunt who already passed? And he said, it depends on how much she spiritually progressed and you spiritually progressed in this life. How soon you two will meet? That answered my next question. Yes, sir. So the people of the lower realms below the martyrs would be able to progress and through their spiritual progression, they would be able Absolutely. to visit the other realms. Yeah. yeah. The other question I have is, um, as I understand it, Baha'is do not believe in a past life, yet I hear him speak about your next life. Can you explain that? Yeah. You know, I just want to first acknowledge that past life is a deeply held belief to many people, and this is not to dispute or disintegrate their dearly held beliefs. So Mm -hmm. I'm just going to say it from a Baha'i perspective is that Baha'u'llah teaches, again, the soul begins at at conception, and it will eventually return to God. And briefly, we understand that uh, the soul is created, and again, like the kingdom, our material world is like the mirror of the next world. And because Baha'u'llah teaches about the oneness and divine unity that exists in all things, it's the singleness of God visible in all things. The reoccurrence of the same divine appearance isn't possible. It like contradicts that basic teaching of that singleness and the unity, like the same spirit of a former essence in a repeated ascent or descent would violate the law of unity and singleness of God and essence in itself. In the material world, recurrence is totally seen. You know, this dies, it disintegrates, it rebirths anew, right? And, you know, but to attain the world of perfection by ascending, descending, ascending, descending, it it, it contrasts the spiritual world, which we are spiritual beings. If we were material beings, that would make a lot of sense, right? So the renewed of something in this world for perfection doesn't happen, according to the master, Abdu'l-Bahá. In his answer, when he was asked that question, he said he also said, once the soul is freed from its cage from this world, why would it seek again to be trapped once more? It just, it, you know, that it that's not how it works. So that was Abdu'l-Bahá's answer to the question of reincarnation. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I agree with some of it. And then some of it, I feel like I want to challenge it. It's like, well, we will come back again as a soul that is ever expanding and and permanent and in our impermanence of being a body we would come back and experience whatever we need to experience in this lifetime in earth school or wherever as is uh fit for the soul and the soul's progression but the soul 
is progressing as it goes through the lifetimes, whether it be realms here on earth and third dimensional reality or, you know, an Arcturian council. <laughs> um, that's really interesting though. Um, and I'm not sure if I even fully get it, which I think is a good thing too, because like you said, you know, any of these teachings that are so deep and rich of coming from such a multi-dimensional download to begin with, our brains will explode if we try to capacitate it. Well, I think that's a really <laughs> good point, which I was going to bring up and you already did is that, you know, Bahala said, we're not allowed in this day and age to divulge to you about the next life or death because, you know, A, you can't understand it. B, it would frighten half the populace <laughs> and the other half populace would be so overjoyed they wouldn't stay here, you know. Yeah. They wouldn't so, care to do their work or their completion. Right. They would just be like, end this now. Get yes. There's a story where trains. there were two youth who kept pestering him. You know, can you tell us, can you tell us what it's like in the next world? And he finally said, look between my two fingers. And they both looked, they both committed suicide within 24 <gasps> hours. Yeah. And that's, so it's like, this is why we don't reveal because it's all joy. He said, death is a messenger of joy to the confident believer. Death is joy. The next world is only joy and love. And we're supposed to be trying to bring that here on this earth while we're part mortal beings, Right. And so that, first of all, we just aren't going to understand it because, you know, we have the mineral world, the plant world, the animal world, the human world and the spirit world. And, you know, again, those lower worlds can't understand the higher worlds. A plant can't understand what it's like to have, be an animal and run around. And a dog can't understand what it's like to be human. Right. Or can a human understand the divine realm? So that's why divine messengers come so they can kind of train us and teach us and Thank reveal you. some things. When I'm in the biofield, and I think you know what I'm getting at, maybe it, it's happened with you when we've worked together. But when I get into the higher realms above the head in the biofield, which are these higher dimensional realities, I can't make sense of them. I just <laughs> handle them and I can give you the information and you can decide what you want to do with it. But there's really nothing we can do with it, but just offer up the information and the soul can digest, assimilate and, and eliminate whatever is needed as it's given to it. <laughs> the yeah. Concept. So beautifully said. I mean, language also, uh, you know, if you uh, have in that biofield session, a spiritual experience, and I have one too, as soon as we start trying to put words to it, it limits it, right, you know, right. Bahala very clearly acknowledges this. It's, you know, words are limitation, you know? Yeah. Yeah. If Baha'u'llah came down to earth, just kind of like hang in there with me for a second. In a cosmic moment, what would one question be that you would ask him? Well, that's kind of a funny question because I pester Baha'u'llah all day with questions and bombard him. And I always say, as soon as I'm dead, I'm going to take eternity to answer all my questions because I have <laughs> a list of a thousand of them because it's the way I've been as a kid, just curious and um, investigative. But I I mean, if I have to narrow it down to one, I think it's <clears throat> my research question, which is Bahala has this intriguing quote that says, there is a knowledge and I'm paraphrasing. I can't remember on the spot here exactly the phrase, but he says um, in the knowledge of God, 
there is a now uh, in the heavens of God, there's a knowledge that could wholly, but not entirely eliminate fear. This is a knowledge that could be taught in childhood. Whatever increaseth, uh, decreases fear, increaseth courage. And then he goes on to say some other things, how this knowledge could, you know, inspire the sciences and arts of humanity. And this is my quest for the last three years and purpose for going back to graduate school, obtaining my PhD in neuroscience is what is this knowledge that could wholly, but not entirely, because we're mammals again, right? We need some fear. If you study people who have had that part of the brain injured and they're fearless, it's dangerous. They're dan in danger to themselves, right? So we need some type of peer fear because it's signals that keep us safe. But beyond that, you know, this more fear of the mind is my thinking about it. But this was what I would ask him is like, what is a knowledge? What is a knowledge? <laughs> and how can I disseminate this? worldwide, because I think one of the, my observation is, you know, watching the world, the news, the players in the world is that they utilize and manipulate through fear. If anyone has been in a relationship with a narcissist or abuser, they also tap on, they'll either worship you or they'll tap on your fear buttons. Again, that ego split, that polarity, right? So I feel like if I can disseminate this knowledge and teach children and wire their nervous system in a really holistic way using this knowledge, they're not going to be phased by right. the narcissist, by this power, because the fact is, Bahala is telling us, no one can take this from you. Your heart is God's domain. No king on earth can touch it, he says. That is you. They cannot take our power. But like you say, through constant manipulation on social media and through all platforms, Repetition. it's a message, you're powerless, you're powerless, you're powerless. Right. No, not true. Right. Not, so if I can get this knowledge, that would be the one I would ask him is, can you give me the skinny on the knowledge? And then I can just go, you know, train everybody on this so that we aren't moved by the abuser. We aren't moved by the threats, by the, you know manipulative strategies right. they don't induce our fear how many times have you gone to the doctor and you've heard you better do this or else or an attorney right. or a you know and it's really truly frightening i mean it's genuinely terrifying to hear those words look at the cover of teen magazine not that i have a teenager in the house but i saw something um just in passing maybe it was on facebook or something of a girl and you guys can look this up it's like out there but this girl, such a baller, she's like 14 years old and she redid through her Photoshop, she redid the cover of, it was like Teen Magazine or Teen USA, one of those, and changed all the sort of, you know, garbage that was on there, like, oh, how to fix your skin, how to lose 10 more pounds, how to look ready for a date, how to, you know just yeah right yeah. powerlessness powerlessness drive it home something's wrong with you you have yes. to change something about yourself you're not good enough the way you're not whole and she changed it all to you know celebrate yourself 10 ways to prove that you're beautiful already just awesome all and green play. Cover, yeah and then the cover was like I think it was actually her with like a graduate degree and like uh, um, like maybe it was like a cap and gown or something. And she was an, 
holding like a telescope or something opposed to the girl with, you know, a half top on and some, you know, mini skirt and, you know, glitter lipstick. I mean, I love glitter lipstick, but you oh, get yeah. who doesn't love bling? Right. <laughs> right. You get my drift. Yeah. You don't need to lead with your body. So yes. Brilliant. I love it. And I love seeing those stories. I just saw on the um, TV today that um, there was a TikTok artist that also was challenging the fashion industry and she got the fashion industry to make larger clothing for women. I mean, how wonderful that we can. So social media is an evil within itself. Technology isn't inherently evil. Money isn't inherently evil. It's what we do with these things. Right. So we can use our noble souls and we can use what is available to us. Right. Well, have we said it all? Is there more to say? Of course there is, but I won't take up your time. I've got one more question. What are some of the predictions? And I know you touched on some, but are there any predictions that he gave for like, 2025 or a hundred years from now, things like that. Um, so, um, when Bahala arrived at the most great prison in Akka, he wrote a series of letters to all the Kings and rulers of the earth, even Abraham Lincoln and Abraham Lincoln wrote him back. You can read the letter. It's quite wow. lovely. And he was, you know, congratulating Abraham Lincoln for eliminating slavery because of course this should not be a thing in our age. Right. Yeah. Like, and so, um, but well, he made a lot of predictions in those letters, but they've already come to pass. All of them have come true. And so, um, but he did in general, again, the theme he talked about was impending chaos, uh, like, um, you, you know, he taught, I mentioned a couple things before, like political confusion, economic distress, major economic distress. Um, there'll be worldwide, you know, players who exert their designs over the world and a lot of people will follow them. And um, there are tons of movements that'll cause confusion. It's going to become a war-torn, weary world. And the bewildering rapidity of successive crises will have an accumulative effect. And that's when the calamity will happen. So I, we understand that the calamity hasn't happened yet. This thing that will cause the limbs of humanity to quake and there will unfurl, you know, the light of unity. You know, everybody will say, yes, we are finally going to do it. Is this like sort of like revelations? No, it's sort of like, just like if, as long as humanity chooses the wayward, waywardness and chooses disunity and us and them mentality, right? things are just going to get worse because of the nature, you know, just throw a bunch of people together, which, you know, before global technology and media, we were living in our small communities, right. you know. And now we're just thrown in the sea of bathwater together. I mean, you can catch the news and you're seeing news everywhere now. I mean, it's just regular. You're just hearing all the bad things happening everywhere. It's so overwhelming, but it's going to get more intense the more, because you can see the radical fanaticism is coming, right? The the intense hatred, the mm. anger, frustration, and one of the most shrilling uh, quotes by Abdu'l-Bahá, Baha'u'lláh's son, was, you know, caring about the oppressed children. 
because they would become fire on the planet. Like so many children are experiencing trauma in the world. They are the leaders of the next part of our world. They're going to be our caretakers. And if we are not taking care of that, they are angry, frustrated, rageful. Mm. They will take it out on the planet. You know, anyone who's been through trauma and unprocessed, uncared for, neglect, they are not good caretakers of the planet. Oh, for sure. Oh, so like that's that. why the, you know, Baha'u'llah also talks about it's not just the Baha'is doing the work. There are other light workers who are actually hearing his call. They don't know his name. And you can, if you go look at his teachings and then go look up .org organizations, they are literally using the same language as Baha'u'llah. They're using the same language as Universal House of Justice. They have the same phrases. They don't even know it. They're not even Baha'is because the Holy Spirit looks for wills, again, horses who will submit doesn't matter what your name is it doesn't matter what your name of your god is like if you're they look for the willing Bahala talks about the angels the army of light they're waiting to help Mm. we call on them to help us in our efforts to create peace within our own selves and healing in our own communities and then in our the whole planet Mm. the light is present that's the very present and we can all work with it. So. Easily available, waiting even, yes. waiting for you. Yes, no more. And why wait? Get to it. Let's go. And nobody can take that power from you. It is your heart. That is God's. No one can take it from you. Hmm. That is a great place to end. Yes. So, guys, I hope this has inspired you. It certainly inspired me and informed me quite a bit. Thank you so much for doing this, Deborah, and just espousing on all this wisdom and knowledge around the Baha'i faith. And we'll have to have you back on All Things Homeopathy. (laughs) I sincerely hope so. It's been a sincere pleasure to talk about Baha'u'llah today. And please, everybody, if nothing else, read what he has to say about our world and what is ahead of us and what our capabilities are. Investigate his truth for your own self. Yeah. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hey guys, thanks for checking out the Spiritual Geek Out podcast. If you like what you're hearing here, check out more by subscribing on your favorite platform or go to spiritualgeekout.com.